Hello and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you watched the Oscars this past weekend, then you probably saw that there are three categories for short films. And believe it or not, that art form is still very much alive and well, and it's showcased in film festivals around the world. One of those festivals is the Aspen Shorts Fest, which is a qualifying uh, film festival for the Academy Award for Best Short Films. And they invited the Dolby Institute to come in and lead a workshop this past year on sound design for short films. I was simply blown away by the quality of the films in the festival this year, and so we decided to share the conversations with you today. The three films that we're discussing could not be more different. There is a, a narrative drama about a woman struggling to overcome hearing loss, a documentary about an architect who is displaced from his home because of war, and a surrealist animated film about an anthropomorphic singularity at the heart of a black hole. But what these films all have in common is that they use sound design in really creative ways to give the audience the subjective experience of the film's protagonists. And some of the work is truly remarkable. So just a bit of business before we get started. Because these films are still in their festival runs, there is no way to watch them online just yet. But the festival and each of the filmmakers have graciously shared some clips with us, which I will set up, especially for our audio-only listeners. However, if you would like to actually see those clips, then please go over to watch this episode on Dolby's YouTube channel using the link below, as always, in our show notes. So first up is Broken House. This is a beautiful documentary from Jimmy Goldblum about architect Mohammed Hafiz and how he uses his work to cope with a unique form of homesickness. Hafiz is from Damascus, Syria, which has been decimated by war. And since he's unable to return home, he decided to rebuild it himself using architectural models, creating a grand model of the ancient city while also showing the destruction that all the violence has wrought there. In this clip, the filmmakers intercut raw footage of the city being bombed and covered in ash and dust as Hafez blasts his own model with ash and dust in just a fury of sorrow. Let's have a look and a listen. Before the Syrian war, my art was very therapeutic, was very cathartic. I was just making, making, making. I wanted to build the Damascus of my memories. A lot of generations came here, a lot of paint happened on these walls. So this is exactly what I'm gonna do. Paint, scrape, paint, scrape. Before you know it, the architecture was telling the story of the human that lived within. And that would bring me home. It's hard to pin down when exactly the war started. My parents hesitated to leave home. It's not until the clashes broke off 100 meters away and shook our whole house. They realized, okay, the conflict is now on our doorstep and we need to leave. something did not look right, I took a hammer to it and I broke it. And I snapped it, I would throw ash at it and burn it. I 
was painting a picture so that people can fully understand the magnitude of destruction. For a split second, you are transported to a different place. Hey, Jimmy, how are you? Good, Glenn. Thank you. Absolutely. Nice to nice to meet you. I, I really love this film. Thank you. Yeah. And I wish Brad could be with us, but like any good editor, he's been dragged into work on a Saturday. So of course, like any good director, I'll take credit for his genius. But that's fine. That's fine. If he's not here to defend himself, so it's all good. So I'm kind of curious, uh, Jimmy, how did you find Muhammad and kind of what was your process of starting to, and how did you, what, what an amazing moment you must've realized when you, when you realized that he was building this model, he's an architect and he builds this model, but to make it feel real to him, he distresses it like his war torn home in Damascus. It was a random journey because I was actually directing a series <clears throat> for Apple and like A24 on the show called Home, which is all about kind of like fancy architects and the insane homes that they build. And we found Muhammad's story as part of the research process for that series. And Apple was like, mm, his house just isn't nice enough. Uh, so he can't be <laughs> on the series. We can't sell like an Apple Home Hub against this. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, if there's anyone to speak about the importance thematically of home, it's this man. So I like begged them to let me take the story back and I found a way to make it. So, and I'm glad that that happened because they wouldn't have allowed me to do it like this. And um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's had his sort of workshop, you know, outside of Yale where he was recreating Damascus originally, like it would just be like little miniatures of Damascus. But then as the war broke out, as a part of artistic therapeutic process, unaware, a subconscious thing, he began to break the models and make them sort of more reflect what was actually happening in Syria. Yeah. Wow. So, I, you know, I, I've got so many questions about this, but I wanted to start with, so you captured this on film. Um, and wh why was that important to you? And did that kind of affect your thinking about what the movie should sound like? Yes, it did. I think for me, um, his process, his intellectual process, right, is to recreate using you know foam and found objects, the texture, the texture of his home. And for me, I just thought that like giving it a digital sheen would somehow feel like corruptive. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you can do it. But yeah. I was like, let's let's put texture. Let's actually use celluloid you know, let's shoot it on 16. And, and you know, we're going to take a textured approach as well. And I think um, kind of having that analog feeling also went into production while we were recording sound because, you know, we would film things in Verite and allow them to play out. But then I would go in with our, our sound recordists and actually just get the actions recorded mm -hmm. for sound mm -hmm. to make sure that we had clean takes. Um, yeah. I just want to uh, say a, a, a note of thanks to you for, from, for on behalf of every sound crew everywhere uh, for letting your sound recorders get some time to record clean audio while you were shooting. That's really, that's remarkable. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, it's, I think for us, you know, look, I, and we've all maybe seen, uh, there's a lot of war documentaries out there. There's a lot of refugee documentaries out there. And um, something that I get personally very upset about is the way in which visual violence is used in order to build empathy. And it's something Muhammad talks about, but it's like the way that you can make people care is by showing more blood or more bodies or a more traumatic image. And so for me, like, I didn't want to show a single drop of blood in this movie, and there isn't one, mm -hmm. but sound became the way that we could, you know, show the impact of war just by hearing it. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it 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 kind of leads into what I think is sort of the one of the really remarkable sequences, which I'm was so thrilled that you included in that clip. So, <clears throat> you you include a lot of archival footage of Damascus and sort of you know bombs going off and kind of that that destruction. One of the things that immediately struck me was uh, 
you know, we're used, we're very used to seeing that on news footage and everything, but we never experience it with full fidelity audio. And that's where the impact comes. So I'm presuming that that's archival footage, but you must have recreated the sound for it in, in order to make it full fidelity, right? Yeah, it was actually footage from ISIS. So it was, I went on like the dark web and found a giant trove of ISIS propaganda films that they had posted to recruit their people. And usually what's playing over that footage is like celebratory chants of like, you know, we did it. Right. And or, or there will be news clips as well where people are people are constantly talking over this imagery. So we did have to go in and kind of recreate it. Um, yeah. Sonic. Well, but then I, I'm just kind of curious, at what point did you sort of realize, oh, I can we're, we're going to build this, you know, the full fidelity version of this destruction. And I can use that same material to overlap that sound into Muhammad distressing his model, which is just such a remarkable choice. And it's a great moment. And it's such a powerful use of sound. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it just, I think that the way that Muhammad described breaking his models, um, he sort of talks about it almost as like entering into a fugue state where he had been internalizing all of these visuals, all of, you know, all of this imagery of the destruction. And essentially he just blacked out according to him and went into the, you know, went into his studio and just started destroying things. And there was a violence in that, that I was like, wow, like he internalized the violence and is now enacting it on his art. He internalized the war and is now enacting it on his art. Can we find visual matches? And we began to find visual matches where it's like you throw something like it's shrapnel. Of course, if he's doing that as an action, like we should also have the sound. So like his arm becomes, you know, a mortar shell. And, and I think the more that we were able to do that, the more that we, um, we were able to bring out to life what the art actually is about. It's true yeah. meaning. I want to I want to just dig into that a little bit more because I think one of the things that I found remarkable about, about your film is I think a, a lot of people um, would think documentary film okay well the sound is just you know diegetic what you record when the camera is rolling and I think they don't necessarily feel like you know there's a role for foley or sound design or sound effects in documentary because it's supposed to be verite and real um, but can you talk a little bit about that and why sound design is important for documentary film. I mean, it's just like, I mean, I think, you know, something I say when I'm talking to like young documentary filmmakers or film students is like, look, you know, right now the emphasis right now is on like, okay, let's go shoot a documentary with a Red or an Alexa. And like, there's this bar visually of like making things look, look a certain way. But like, honestly, I've seen incredible documentaries that are shot with horrendous footage. That's not my style, but like it, they exist and I have enjoyed them, but I have never watched a movie that I have enjoyed with bad sound. It is like right. the one thing that will just throw you out of the experience faster than anything. And it happens a lot with young documentary filmmakers where they're like, look at my beautiful images. I'm like, well, it sounds like garbage. So right. we have to figure this out. And, but for me, like that's the baseline, but then it's just like, it's your painter tools. Like it's this whole realm that you can layer on to, particularly with someone like Muhammad who is recreating his memories, right? Like, what do his memories sound like? It's not just visual. It's like the sound of like bicycles riding by your window. It's the sound of the birds that are very specific birds to Damascus. It's the sound of the call to prayer. Like, you know, so much of our history and memories is not just visual. So I think that it's a really good thing to think about, like as you're trying to recreate, like what is my painter's toolbox, right? Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I think, you know, what what you said kind of just echoed for me that like, <clears throat> you know, that sound design can get you at a deeper subjective truth, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be literally true <laughs> if it's emotionally true, yeah. right? Yeah. Totally. And I think that's a lot of, you know, documentary filmmakers who I love um, and I consider myself part of a tradition. It's like not, you know, Werner Herzog would be like, if you want, you know, objective truth, take the phone book. That's it. Sure. Yeah. It's like the minute we turn on a camera, we are by Heisenberg's principle changing everything. So let's at least get at what we consider honest.
like that's i think the way that we use sound is although we are layering in things that did not literally happen on set i think it's a very honest take on what he's remembering yeah yeah that's really well put um i'm just kind of curious how was the process of of uh, the sound edit and the mix for you you did this you, you did this work in new york didn't you yeah yeah, yeah. so i Brad, who's my editor and like most documentary filmmakers, like, you know, at some point my therapist, savior, like, you know, surrogate wife, like he's, you know, it was, we, we, we did a lot of it together. And then we worked with Chris Dangroom, who's an old friend of mine at Hobo to kind of like clean up our like machinations. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it's also, you, know, you have to find sound libraries and like, right. that's, and you know, because we don't just want it to be just diegetic. So it's like really trying to figure out like, okay, when a wall falls, maybe I don't have something literally that is a wall falling, but like, what can we use? Oh, this like thing falling down the stairs actually replicates that pretty well. So mm -hmm. it's just a process of throwing things against the wall and seeing what subjectively felt right. Yeah. And the music is remarkable too. Um, it's just, it's, it's a really haunting, uh, uh, treatment of music that really echoes uh, Muhammad's emotional state um, and his relationship with his mother, which is quite complicated. <sighs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I look, I mean, I think for us, I, something that I think, you know, and, and it's said in the film is like, we typically try to talk about the cost of war. We enumerate it through like the number of casualties, right? But it's like, of course, that's like the largest trauma is like the people who die or the people who are injured. But there's such more violence that is perpetuated. And like a lot of what I'm talking about, because Muhammad is an architect, is the architectural violence, right. like losing a cultural history in Damascus, which is like the largest, the oldest inhabited city on the planet. You know, to lose that cultural history is insane. But then obviously with his mother, it's that familial disaster, which is like, that's just sad enough. Like we do yeah. not need to see people die to recognize that like these people who love each other should be able to be under the same roof. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's, it's a remarkable film and a very creative use of sound design. I was really blown away by it. Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Many thanks to director Jimmy Goldblum and his team. Next up is a film from Belgium called Ligie, directed by Aline Magray. This film tells the story of Sarah, a deaf woman who reluctantly agrees to undergo surgery to restore her hearing. In this clip, we experience a recurring motif of the sound of the train, which becomes more and more cacophonous as Sarah grows more and more overwhelmed before we are transported to the eerie quiet of her hospital room post-surgery. The dialogue is in French, but you can watch this clip with English subtitles on the video version of this podcast over on the YouTube channel. Let's roll the clip.
Eileen McGrez, the director of the film. Hi, and, and, and thanks for uh, joining us. Hi, thank you. So uh, I just love this film. Uh, I think it's, 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 really, it's really amazing. And you, you did something that, um, uh, oh, Bruno is with us as well, your sound designer. Uh, I saw he popped in there for a second. <laughs> um, Alina, I wanted to start with, with you. This film really illustrates one of my, I, you know, uses of sound design that I just love, which is to give the audience the experience of the main character. Um, you really, you and Bruno did a remarkable job of letting us hear the world the way that Sarah hears it. And I'm curious, was that part of your concept from the film from the very beginning? Were you thinking about that as you wrote the film and developed the idea? Yes, yeah, so um, I was uh, already with the previous films uh, interested about the uh, idea how the cinema can make experience and how uh, perception of reality can be different for each other. And I'm really interested in that and how to make the mental world or the hidden someone uh, transcript in, on screen. And I'm really interested in doing the subjectivity in sound and not in uh, image as we are most more used to and so yeah the the script was already really precise uh, and a lot of descriptions of sound actually um so we it was like uh, almost as um as much sound as image i think so it was not really cool to read but so i guess it's better now that it's done uh, but the whole point of the film was to to give an experience, and so um, by the sound, it was the whole narrative taking form because the image is quite. Uh, we take the decision to be really pure or mm -hmm. really um, uh, sober. Uh, I don't know if it's the right term in English, but yeah, it was from the beginning. The image work is very simple. Um, and it feels like the sound is doing a lot of the work to kind of communicate her internal state, which I, I think is is amazing. So I'm I'm curious, um, had you and Bruno worked together before, or how did how did Bruno get how did you get involved in this in the film? Well, um, I was the the producer that uh, I was working with, and uh, she introduced us to uh, for this short movie. And uh, so we started to, to talk about the, um, the script before um, uh, before the shooting, because I, I did the shooting and then the sound editing. So we could talk about the sound really, uh, really before the production and the post-production. So that was what quite comfortable to to um, anticipate all the, the intentions, the sound intentions, and talk about that. Uh, and that was really, really uh, interesting because Aline was really, as, as she said before, uh, she was really precise in the script about the sound intention. And uh, I don't think it was so uh, problematic to read, but <laughs> it's it's uh, it's uh, my part, so I was uh, in a way uh, a bit. Uh, it was a kind of compliment. So I, I wanted to ask uh, both of you um, 
you know, the, the sound work is so distinctive in the, in terms of the way that you give the audience, uh, Sarah's experience of being deaf. Uh, and she does have a, she does have a hearing aid that allows her to have some, some experience of hearing. Um, and so I want to ask you how you went about creating what her world was going to sound like and what was your thinking? Uh, and I love the fact that, uh, she gets so easily overwhelmed and sometimes she just her, the way she deals with that is just to turn them, turn the, the hearing aid off and go back to silence. Uh, I love the way you use silence in this film, mm -hmm. but talk to us for a second about how you decided and designed what the world of her kind of mechanical hearing was going to be. Yeah. So I had that, um, so it was like different world to construct. So the, the material, the technical sound, uh, her silence, it was a really big, uh, uh, challenge, obviously. And then the sound of her body and then the sound before, after. And with Bruno, we listened to a lot of, um, sound. It, I think it's, um, a researcher who did, who find a way to trans, mm -hmm. uh, transmit us the sound of what they sh they would hear through the system because it's so difficult to understand and it's actually mm -hmm. really really awful and because i had talked with a lot of um deaf or partially deaf people they're always telling the same thing that it's actually really not um comfortable because they don't do the mixing well and all of it is quite electronic and so they mostly they had to shut it down uh when they are in a big uh, room with a lot of person but then we actually i think bruno you can say it something about it after but at the beginning we did something really bad like it was really difficult to hear and then we decided to do it a little bit less so for the spectator it's not too much because we knew we were going to play a, a small game with the spectator that he had to accept that the sound is not uh, perfect or like you hear it all the time but it was at the beginning really too bad but we did a lot of hmm. really bad things uh to sound i have to say compression a lot but bruno can maybe say yeah, more. yeah bruno please tell us uh, yeah. about the process yeah about the process we yeah we started from that point uh with the realistic uh, approach and and finally uh we uh step by step we 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 make a, a sound more stylized because uh yeah to 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 make it uh, more hearable for the spectator because because uh if we do the film like uh re realistic like the the system uh, in the sense of the system, it could be difficult to hear the the sound of the film and to follow all the all the film along the. Um, so uh, we 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 did some choice in this kind of yeah we 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 did this, that choice and um, at the start of the film uh, we we made a kind of. Uh, really bad sound to to make it more uh uh more uh, but, um, uh what she could hear but mm -hmm. after the, the the operation after the surgery uh we make it a bit more um, i mean more more, more clear it's uh, interesting that you say that. Yeah, you you so midway through the film she has a surgery that restores her hearing mm -hmm. and she thinks, you know, she thinks this is going to be, you know, she's nervous about it, but everybody yeah. around her thinks that this is going to be a fan. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out that it's more complicated than that. Um yeah. and I, I I love I love that the way you used the way you use the sound design after her surgery. You're right, it becomes more clear. But at mm -hmm. the same time, you use sound to really overwhelm her and yeah. really communicate to the audience that this is it's too much. It's too much for her to deal with. And obviously, then she takes some pretty strong action. I won't give away, no spoiler. But uh, uh, I thought it was just remarkable. Uh, and and uh, I, I love the, the, the mix especially is fantastic on the film. Yeah, the 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 mixer. I don't know if it's the same. It it did a, a really beautiful work, and I'm always saying that I'm really sad because no one is 
sing it in the right way. It's a 5.1 mixing that no one has seen <laughs> except me in uh, alone with my producer and my uh, image editor, even Bruno, he just saw it in the mixing room, but not in theater. So yeah, he did a, an amazing job, I think. And for the second part, actually the whole uh, thing was when it's also uh, like real in one way is that when you uh, get that surgery, your uh, brain is not uh, set to be able to mix all the song. So you just hear everything really close, really far. You don't know you have a big difficulty of geographically uh, speaking. And this is also why it's really uh, something that uh, deaf and partially deaf people mm -hmm. are saying, don't do it because it could be like, really bad and it's actually um the whole thing about obviously the the film the subject for me is larger than only um deaf difficulty but about like difference can be a force actually and she's going to lose it um but yeah we 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 had to it was easier actually the second part to work with because we we can i can imagine it uh really um better than the first world but in one way the world in the train is fantasies and in a dream it was actually uh really difficult but also really um exciting because we can do whatever we want so it's also um the whole balance a good balance to work with um yeah i guess yeah, I especially I, I love the way I you handle the scenes uh, in the lab. And, and in the beginning, the lab is like a very safe cocoon for her. Uh, and then after she gets the surgery, it's overwhelmingly loud. And she, to your point, she can't, she has a hard time filtering out like what sounds to pay attention to and what it's just a it's just a uh, it's just overwhelming. And so uh, the Bruno, the sound design in that sequence is just fantastic. And and I, I love the way that, you know, you, you, you use non-literal sounds like the, you know, I, I made a note, the, uh, the, um, the sound design of her looking through the microscope then becomes the passing street lamps on the train as she drives, you know, as she's, as she's riding along. And there's just a lot of great work in there. I thought it was just remarkable and fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That, that was a really cool moment because we had to i mean i'm saying cool now but i was really <laughs> panicking during the whole sound editing process because i wanted to try so much and i was never really like completely happy with it but for during the um, uh the, the sound the the folly uh and we had to find all these uh, small sounds for the microscope and for the dreamy part and for the train and i think it was really exciting moments for for us to work with her and find all these abstract uh sounds yeah yeah it's really great well congratulations to the both of you i think it's a remarkable film and just a fantastic sound design and, and, and mix so congratulations to both of you Thank you very much. Thank you once again, Eileen McGray and sound designer Bruno Schweisquith. Our last film is, well, it's a little difficult to summarize. It is a surrealist mixed media animated musical called Oh Black Hole by Renee Zahn, and it is delightful. We'll get into what the film is about when I speak with the filmmakers, but I'll do my best to contextualize this next clip. As the film transitions from hand-drawn animation into stop motion, we slip down into a black hole where we meet the singularity, the glowing angelic protagonist, as she is confronted by three ominous gray tormentors made of murky clay. I know that sounds wild, but believe me, it all comes together and makes sense as a sort of a, a visual poem. Let's check it out. And once again, she danced happily. They would be with her for eternity. Because now there was no wax or wane. No ebb or flow. No fear or pain. Everything would stay the same. Safe inside the black hole.
Finally. Singularity. Singularity. Wake up. We've lain in wait for the one who will end our pain and start our dance through time again. Who? Me? No, 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 it can't be. Oh, yes, you are singularity. But what can I do to bring this dark void to light? You must journey to the top. Of this great, great heart. You'll meet the one she's held so long. Remind them of their long lost songs. Then look the black hole in her eye. And teach her how to say goodbye. Well, uh, I want to just start before we dive into kind of um, the, the the technical side of the film. Uh, I, I really just want to kind of take a step back and and Renee start with you and say like, what was it about this particular story that called out to you and said, uh, I you know, and made you say, I need to make this particular movie, and uh, and then I want to ask like, wh why this specific form of animation and why a musical. Um, so the idea for the film came from, um, so this is our grad film from our film school at the National Film and Television School. And the film came from this drawing that I was, that I started making a couple years ago, which was of a woman with um, sort of this dark smear where her face should be. And um, I started trying to work out what who she was what her what her story was because my films tend to start from from images usually and um so I, yeah i came up with this idea of a, that she had turned into a black hole um and the reason she turned into a black hole was because she was so afraid of um time passing and things changing and people leaving her that she sucked in the entire universe inside her to keep everything safe and forever because time slows down inside a black hole. Um, so that was sort of the uh, genesis of the idea. Mm -hmm. And then, but through the, but the plot of the film is this sort of entity inside her called the singularity, who's like this force of chaos, this little girl who um, sees that everything in the universe, because they don't want to be inside, they don't want to be forever, they, you know, the film, I guess, is about the idea that uh, like time passing and transience, it's all it's beautiful and that's what is meaningful. Um, so the film, and I wanted it to be sort of talking about these ideas, these big ideas, but also be really, be entertaining and be fun. And mm -hmm. that's where, that's how it became a musical um, and this sort of quest journey. And it follow. I guess it follows this tradition of like, of these sort of musical, dark musicals like um, Labyrinth, like, right. you know, um, so that's where a lot of the inspiration came from. Um, yeah, I think that's, I guess that's kind of an overview of where yeah. it Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious because obviously, uh, you know, you're also mixing forms. <clears throat> so the black hole um, is kind of traditional uh, hand-drawn um, 2D animation, looks like it's watercolor almost 
with maybe some acrylic uh, thrown in there. Uh, and then when you go into the black hole, into the world of the singularity, that's uh, stop motion animation, right? Uh, claymation. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what, what made you decide that you wanted to play with that, um, you know, with those two forms? And then Ed, I wanna, I, I wanna draw you into the conversation and, and ask like, did those mixture of visual styles, did that uh, affect your decisions from a sound design perspective and how you approach the film? Um, yeah, so the two mediums came from really wanting to differentiate the world outside the black hole and the world inside, which is inside this this woman. Um, and so the world outside is sort of, it's ephemeral, it's, uh, tr it's sort of delicate and not solid, uh, which is why I decided to go with um, the 2D drawing, which is made of charcoal and watercolor and some paint, um, like you said. And then what once everything that she keeps inside her is is meant to be really solid and, and forever which is why we built these sets and had these puppets that were 3d and felt more solid and real and it was kind of this unique challenge because no one and an exciting challenge because no one knows what a black hole looks like really or sounds like and so we which meant that we had all this freedom to decide um and to invent this kind of world inside of her yeah, there was a lot to invent. <laughs> it gave us a lot. <laughs> so, Ed, you know, I, I, before, let's dig into the your your how you created the sounds of that world. But I'm kind of curious before we get into that, like, what state was the film in when you got involved, and was the imagery finished, or kind of how did that process go? Uh, I was involved right from almost before the animatic, so we kind of joined as a team, kind of when you were still coming up with the idea. It was kind of yeah, quite was, fleshed out, but there was still quite a lot. Yeah, really early on. And it, it was sort of this, and it was nice having everybody involved so early because it was kind of like the things you would show me would kind of influence how it, how the film looked, how the, even how the plot sort of evolved. Um, so yeah, it was a nice collaboration right, right from the start. Yeah, because we were constantly doing animatics and updating the animatic and working with, scenes that Renee had finished. We do a little bit of sound that flesh out the music because at various times we were recording the voices and recording the all the multiple voices that there are in the, in the film. The quality of the voice recording is really uh, amazing. Um, the voices are so expressive. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, about directing your actors and how you kind of got them to that kind of emotional state? Um, yeah, so we worked with two, the two main women um, vocalists are Emmy the Great, who's a British Hong Kong um, singer songwriter, and Laurie Luxemburg, who's an um, experimental opera singer. And um, I think some of the sort of inti intimacy of their voices and their performance was because we went to their houses to record, because nobody wanted to come to Beaconsfield, where the school was, um, which, of course, Gave, you know, was very challenging for, for Ed as well. Um, I got better at it as we went through. <laughs> <laughs> we kept going back. Um, but yeah, they kind of, I really, we chose them because they sort of embodied the, the characters that uh, we were trying to create. Like Emmy's voice is so pure and, and sort of delicate and um, honest already. So she, felt like the perfect fit for Singularity, who's this kind of, uh, like a young girl um, who just, you know, wants to save all her new friends. And then Lore is kind of, uh, she's a force of nature. Um, her, I mean, just even just her, the power behind her voice and the sort of crazy ways she can manipulate it. We, we got just minutes and minutes and minutes of like just- <laughs> Almost unusable stuff. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she went. Very far. <laughs> yeah, like what you hear on screen is sort of the most, um, like the the least insane <laughs> performance that she gave that she gave us. Which, even so, um, she kind of captured this the spirit of the black hole, who's really uh, hurt and really desperate. Um, yes, that came through in the performance really strongly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the um, the mix of animations was a great one for me because we. We'd had Dolby Atmos installed about three months earlier at the school. Oh, really? So we were all looking for things to play with, and that tunnel was just kind of 
amazing playground in terms of having things moving around, but also in keeping the 2D all in the LCR, or even kind of mostly in the center, then you had that amazing enveloping, because it was already like uh, The Wizard of Oz, that kind of color moment um, in the animation, but adding that with sound was just kind of another level of I'm so I'm so thrilled that you brought that up, and I had no idea that you had mixed this in Dolby Atmos. That's really that's really <laughs> amazing. And so you know, you're uh, you know, uh, National Film Intelligence is called one of the only places in the world right now that has a Dolby Atmos. So you have an actual Atmos mixing stage there. Yeah, yeah, full theatrical. Atmos. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll I'm not going to get too off in the weeds about this, but for anybody who's listening in uh, who who doesn't know, so Dolby Atmos is a Kind of a it's a it's a new way of thinking about immersive sound it's not channel based it treats uh, sounds as individual objects that can be placed in the 3d space of the theater and it utilizes overhead speakers to really kind of um you know provide a a, a complete sonic envelope uh, to put the audience in so ed and renee was this was your first time experiencing dolby atmos like what what was your process of of Kind of exploring that and and how did you kind of teach yourselves how to use that tool i think it was a lot of playing to be honest we we uh, i'd done a couple of other fit of the grab projects so this is i've had a little bit of experience but it was still because kind of playing with sending reverbs around and seeing what was effective really seeing what kind of made the film come to life in the sound yeah yeah, it was. A, I mean, it was my first experience um, doing anything of this of this scale, and it was so exciting to sort of um, walk into that room where Ed had been for four hours or something, and he was showing me. You know, he'd figured out how to sp- spin something around, like 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 three sixty. It was going all around us, and making me really dizzy. Um, just just to the sound, and it, yeah, it was so it's a really sort of exciting uh, place to be with with the whole post production team. We'd all sort of gather. Um, it'd be us and the editor, Ami, and uh, composer, Harry, um, sort of the four of us often sitting in the room, just kind of, wow. Because <laughs> Harry was great. He's very technical, but very creative. And he'll, he'd have ideas for, oh, what, why don't you put that stem up in there and put that stem, maybe move that one round and round and I'll split that off for you. And it was just, yeah, really fun. Lots of late nights. But. <laughs> well, I really, I, I really love what you said about kind of you, uh, you know, Ed. Uh, your your approach was to just stick to the front speakers for the hand drawn animation, and then sort of when you go through that tunnel into the stop motion world, then then you open up the sonic. So that to me is just a great example of using the technology to really take the audience on that journey, uh, you know, and, and give them the full kind of treatment, which is super exciting. I'm, I'm always really intrigued when I meet directors and sound designers uh, to ask kind of how you collaborated and how you spoke to each other. And Renee, how did you communicate to Ed what it was that you were, you know, your creative intentions? I find that, you know, sound is so hard to talk about. It's hard to verbalize. So how did you sort of, Collaborate with Ed and get Ed from a sound design perspective where you where you needed him to be to support the film. Um, that um, I think we it helped that we get along really well um, and we'd worked together on one small project uh, before this, which actually we just finished um, after this. Um, but I definitely don't have the vocabulary the vocabulary to sort of articulate. But we talked a lot about. The story, we talked a lot about the emotions that um, sort of at each stage of the film that needed um, to be conveyed. And we talked a lot, I mean, because it's sort of, it's a school film and, you know, on this budget, so there's only so much we can do set-wise and visual-wise. So there was so much, but with the sound, you can kind of make this huge world. Um, so that was a very exciting element of it. And... Um, Renee's also very good at making the sound that she wants. Oh, yeah, that's how I, I was just, yeah, that's really, I'm like, I, the, the yeah, that might be actually most of it. <laughs> I can tell you that even at Skywalker Sound, that's the, that's the, that's the little secret of sound design is all the sound designers' vocals end up in the films at some point. <laughs> yeah, ours, ours, yeah, I did. At one of these, one night in the, in the, 
uh, mixing room for the scene part of the scene that you just saw the tunnel going down um we realized we needed tortured screams of sort of the uh you know creatures who had been trapped there for a thousand years and so at 4 a.m the best screams came from harry the composer from from uh, we all had a, we all have a scream in there somewhere that's great Screams of real, real four in the morning pain. That's yeah, that's, real agony. that's what makes the movie come to life. Time really well, had stopped for us. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. So I, I'm just curious. Uh, there's so much going on in this movie. So many delightful moments. I love this. I love the sound design of the um, uh, of the baby planet. That was really a delightful moment for me. But for both of you, what was your what's your favorite sound moment in the film? Something that makes you smile when it comes up. You first. <laughs> I think for me, it is the tunnel just because of there's kind of the tunnel and just before it just there's kind of elements with so many so many um experimentate like rounds of adding things taking things away uh, even after we played the film then adding another element and that being just now we're now we've got it now everything's in there that we kind of is needed and then i kind of feel that every time i watch it so that's definitely it for me that's great. Well, I think you guys did a remarkable job with it. And certainly, uh, Renee, you know, what you were saying uh, really rang true for me, which is like your, your, your sound work is so dense in the film. It makes it feel like a much bigger, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, film than maybe you would, would have thought you would have had the budget to, to give the audience the experience of. So congratulations, yeah. uh, Ed and Renee, it's a really, it's a really fantastic film. So thanks for talking with us about it today. Oh, thanks, thanks very much. So much. Thank you to Renee Zahn and sound designer Ed Rousseau. And thank you to Susan Rubel, Jason Anderson, and all the folks at Aspen Shorts Fest for inviting us to participate this year. Keep an eye out for these amazing films and these filmmakers. Uh, I'm certain that you're going to be hearing more about each of them uh, very soon. We'll be back again in two weeks to discuss the re-release of Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, which amazingly turns 10 years old this year. And to celebrate that, they decided to remaster the film in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. So we've got some great interviews with director Edgar Wright and the sound designer and mixer Julian Slater, so make sure you're subscribed if you're not already. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in the show notes or by searching for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And, you know, while you're there, consider leaving us a rating or a review on the Apple Podcasts app. It really helps raise awareness of our show so that we can continue to grow. Until then, thanks again for joining us. This has been the Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Tristan Enriquez. Thank you for listening.